Thank you for joining us for Listen NGI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Jonathan Buscaglia hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 14,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Biscaglia, uh, professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology at Stony Brook University on Long Island. And this month, I'm super pleased to have Dr. Ashley Foe talk to us a little bit about training in endoscopy during fellowship. And Dr. Foe is a professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and UH Cleveland Medical Center. And she's the director of endoscopy at the Lewis Stokes VAMC or the Cleveland VA. So Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. So it's great to talk to you about this topic because th- this has always been a difficult area to kind of, for me at least, to grapple um, in terms of training fellows, really how to effectively train somebody in the very beginning stages of their endoscopy experience. And I know that a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on this and, you know, some of it's based in, you know, science and looking at it, you know, scientifically and others just based in their experience, you know, teaching fellows and watching fellows learn over the years. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts as an, as somebody who is not only an expert endoscopist, but an expert teacher in endoscopy. Um, so getting us to start off here, I think, you know, one of the things that comes to mind uh, very early is the way that most of us do this right now in most fellowship training programs, I would say, I think most around the country, is that it tends to be that the, the fellows in their first year are pretty heavily burdened on the hospital inpatient GI service. And they're often taking care of the sickest patients who are, you know, upper GI bleeds or lower GI bleeds. And ironically, those tend to be the most challenging, technically difficult endoscopy cases to be involved in. Um, And then on the other hand, you know, when they're later in their fellowship, maybe their second and third year, they're doing more electives and more ambulatory work and maybe not as involved in those really sick, um, technically challenging endoscopy cases. So and what are your thoughts on that? Is that the case where you are? Have you have you seen this model before? I imagine, yes. What do you think? Yeah, I have seen this model. And it's interesting when I think back to when I was a fellow, there were certainly fewer of us and we didn't have this. I don't recall it being front loaded really for first years particularly, but we definitely see it in our program. And I've even made some efforts to suggest that maybe, you know, we shouldn't because we all know that the third years, the last couple months start scrambling (laughs) and falling all over each other to try to get to the endoscopy suite first to scope patients. Um, When they start freaking out that they're going to suddenly be all by themselves and they're not sure they know how to do everything. So it, I, I think it's definitely a problem, and I'm not really sure why we do that. It doesn't really make sense to me. So an interesting thing that our fellows came up with is something called buddy call. So, mm. you know, when you're on call and it's a first-year fellow, basically the attending does the case, right? I mean, they have right. no idea what they're doing. So um, so it just didn't make sense to us that we're basically doing the endoscopy. So 
um, we do this buddy call. Now they do it for the first two to three months of uh, the year. So basically an upper year fellow is the buddy call for the first year fellow. So if the first year fellow decides they're going in to do a case, then the upper year comes in, shows them how to set up the cart and ends up if the first year starts doing the case and, you know, who knows if they can even intubate the esophagus very well or, you know, get out of this, the rectum, then the upper year fellow takes over. And then if they need help, then the attending helps. So mm. that's one way we've sort of overcome a little bit of that issue. But I, yeah, I'm not sure why it sort of happened this way that the third years, you know, we barely ever see them or, you know, where are they? You know, they show up here and there. They seem to kind of apologies to of all the third year fellows out there listening to the podcast right now. You're not all like that. No, but I think it's, you know, they're doing electives, they're right. doing research, they're doing other things yeah. because they kind of get that freedom. They've done all a lot of their clinical work. Because remember, GI fellowship used to be just two years. So the requirements right. aren't three years worth um, of service time. So I think that certainly has changed. And I think it's that way at a lot of places. So that's what we've done is this yeah. sort of buddy call. And it can, it can, it can help. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I, you know, we we try to. I, I know at our program we try to, you know, coach the fellows in the very beginning about setting up the cart and things like that. But the truth of the matter is, is, you know, you may have that, you know, several months or weeks before you have to come in for a bleeder. For example, at our program, we generally delay call until after they do their boards. Um, and right. you know, the board exam is later in the fall. And so they may not be coming in for a call many, many, many weeks after they learn the cart. So like little things like that would be super valuable to have, um, you know, a buddy system, certainly if you had enough fellows to do that. I don't know, were your third year fellows not super pleased to be the buddy uh, when you asked them to be buddies? No, I don't think they mind because they know they're coming in. They're not going to do a consult. They're not getting called unless there's a scope. So for them, that seems fine. And that frankly, we have a lot of fellows. So they are really not on call that often anyway. So I I don't think they seem to mind. I personally was, you know, sort of favoring just let's make the shift. And, you know, why are we front loading everything? It still doesn't 100% make sense to me. But that's sort of the way it's evolved. And then, of course, once that happens, the third year's if you try and switch it when they're a third year, you know how that goes. They're like, yeah. wait a minute. I yeah. did my gig the first yeah. two years. So, so what's yeah. your, what's your approach, Ashley, to um, let's say you are on call with a fellow and you're doing a, let's say an upper GI bleeder and it's a, a relatively novice fellow, say a first year um, versus a third year, like how, like, you know, take a typical, you know, duodenal ulcer, visible vessel, active bleeding, Tell us what you would do differently between those two. How would you approach it? Well, you know, certainly always try to not yell out, oh, there it is, right? You you (laughs) want the fellow to make the recognition of, you know, what's the problem? You know, what are the, are there stigmata and things like that? Um, One thing we do try to teach the fellows is how to use the devices on the tech side, because, you know, we try to remind them, you don't know where you're going to end up being and whether people are going to know how to use different devices. And so I think we do teach them at the beginning, it's important to understand how to put the needle out and how to inject the epi. And so it's there is learning to be had if you don't have your hands on the scope. So right. that is one thing we try and teach the fellows is how to use the how the clips work, you know, half the clips work differently than others, you know, rotating clips, um, how to use epi. Certainly, if you're going to use the hemo spray, how to set that up. So there are a lot of things that even if they don't have their hands on the scope at the beginning, you know, they would 
um, be able to learn something. And then with the third years, you know, pretend like I'm not here. What would you do? What would this be? You know, right. What, what would you be doing if you were the attending? Yeah, so, I, I like that approach a lot, I, especially, you know, with the third years. I say, OK, pretend I'm not here and you're on call next year and you have nobody else to ask. You know, what are you going to do? You know, keep sort of pushing them to 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 try to answer the questions and, and feel like what it's like to be on your own, because it, it's scary when you're first year faculty, first year attending physician, and you're out there dealing with these cases right. by yourself. Right. The yeah. other thing is scope choice. You know, we try and tell the fellow, like, you, I want you to, do you know the difference between the scopes, right? Do we want a diagnostic? Do we want a therapeutic? Is yeah. there a steel bleeder? You know, whatever. So, so there are sort of lots of things that they need to think about. And, you know, we, we also used to never have techs on call or nurses on call. Um, and actually in the pandemic and then now with the nursing shortage, we still have, you know, nurses only coming in for advanced procedures, um, with the scope reprocessing issues, you know, we used to clean the scopes ourselves. That's not happening anymore, but we try to get the fellows to spend time in the scope room and watch them and see how they Mm -hmm. clean them so they can understand where the brush comes out, you know, when you put it in the suction Mm -hmm. channel and, you know, little tricks like that. So that when the scope gets clogged and you're scoping, you kind of understand how the channels work. So yeah. How to troubleshoot. I think that's so important. I always, always try to impress upon the fellows, like don't just, you know, grab the scope and be ready to go and stick it in the patient's, you know, mouth or, (laughs) or anus. It's, it's, it's more about like, you know, set it up from the very beginning so that when things go wrong, you know how to solve them instead of the the physician that can is really sort of incapable of dealing with some of those problems because you know, as we said you're doing these cases sometimes often in the night with limited resources and it's you or maybe somebody who doesn't really know much um, so right. you don't have all the benefits of having everybody in the unit around you um, so that's very interesting you know some <clears throat> getting kind of back to your buddy system uh, analogy or you know protocol that you guys have there some fellowships I've noticed um, have, which have have incorporated like a scoping fellow and a consult fellow. Um, and I think the reason why a lot of people do that is to, you know, sort of free up the time when you're really overburdened with a lot of consults during the day. You know, how do you see, you know, 10 consults, but also scope the five patients that you need to scope from the day before. So it's really challenging. So I, I understand this concept of a scoping fellow and a consult fellow. And I think there are pros and cons. So what are your, have you heard of this before? And what are your thoughts on it? Well, we actually somewhat do that on the consult service, but I don't think it really works because they end up just splitting the cases, you know, so they just doing sort of half the work. And then when they're rounding, oh, we're rounding. So, you know, I think it's hard to, you know you also have an attending who has to round on olds and news and who saw that patient mm-hmm. and they don't both know the patient so i would say that it doesn't hugely work mm. uh, you know i don't know how is it supposed to work if you saw the patient but you're rounding and you're down scoping and the other fellow doesn't know the patient sort of thing so yeah, I, I don't it's... know we have not really figured that one out honestly and the fellows do try to get down for the cases but it doesn't always work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. I would rather, if I had the luxury, put another person on service to, you know, dilute the load so that the, that fellow can feel more at ease while they're scoping, trying to learn the procedure and not feel like they're pestered with pages and needing to see more consults um, and kind of attack it by that method rather than, you know, scoping versus consult fellow um, seems to be a little bit more 
appropriate. Do you guys put, um, you know, more senior fellows on the service uh, with with your, you know, early first year fellows at some point during the beginning of the year to help with these types of things? So we try to, especially at the VA, because both fellows scope in the morning is mm-hmm. a little bit different than in university. And mm-hmm. so we really can't have two first year fellows scoping because the pace is just not good enough. Yeah. So um, we do mix that up at the VA. Um, and over at the university, you know, there's a teaching service. So the fellows are really all about teaching. There's a resident and other you know, uh, an upper year resident and, and first year resident. So that's not, you know, that gives them a lot of time to do teaching, which I think they really like. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, the consult surface is broken up and not necessarily needing to have an upper year there. Um, but certainly the, the upper years are a little more organized and efficient. So they tend to be able to get to their scopes more so than the first years who are still trying to sort of figure out, you know, what's what. Right, seeing patients and they're just a little less efficient. Right. What about, um, this is a a, a sort of change of topic here, but uh, I always scratch my head a little bit about, you know, simulator models and how useful they are in the beginning of somebody's endoscopy journey, like in the first six months of their fellowship. Um, And I will say like, before we, before we, before I get your thought on this, I think simulation has changed over the years. When I was a fellow, simulation was, uh, uh, you know, kind of like this mannequin model that um, had some computer associated with it. And it was kind of really cool and unique, but I still really didn't feel that it gave me the really, you know, kind of feel of, of scoping. Now there seems to be more incorporation of things like, you know, pig stomachs and pig intestines, which, you know, may not, I don't know, give you the same feel of advancing the scope to a cecum, but it does allow you to actually play around with real, you know, devices and things like that. So wondering what your thought is on the whole simulation and sim labs and things like that. Sure. So, so we have the symbi- the, you know, the dummy as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's useful, mostly not so much for the, you know, getting to the cecum and things, but for the dials and the buttons, mm-hmm. because that's the hardest thing at the beginning. If you have to think which finger, you know, until it's second nature, it's a lot of work to think about that yeah. and do the endoscopy. So we try and get the fellows, you know, the fellows who are residents with us who have access to it, we try and get them to do a number of hours before they even start, because then it puts you ahead of the game, right? If you know yeah. at least how the dials and buttons work, I think that's a huge thing yeah. that will help with those kind of you're right, sort of lamer um, um, models. And I think, you know, having someone there, so either a faculty member or an upper year fellow to also help them, because you can't really just sort of stick someone in a room and hope that they're going to figure it out. So I think you do need instruction with that. So it's not as straightforward. I mean, there are these nice virtual reality things, but I don't know if people are using them. I don't know. They're probably expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, they just like you were saying, they don't quite simulate exactly you know real endoscopy the live pigs you know or i mean the the pig the explants yeah explants, certainly yeah. you know there are a lot of um device companies that are very interested in doing workshops for fellows so i mm-hmm. you know we try and take advantage of those so they can play with different toys i mean it obviously you know doesn't behave as a normal stomach would it's mm-hmm. sort of standing still and makes things you know easier to use um, um but i think i think there is 
some benefit to those sorts of things. So we try to, you know, get the fellows to do the simulator, our, you know, dummy one just for using the scope so that the first time that they touch it is not in a live patient because that's just really hard, you know, knowing how to use the dial. So I think that's really useful. Um, Another thing that I was really, really hot on was when Chris Thompson um, showed us this training box that he had developed. You know, he went to... he went to Target and got a plastic box and he fi- <laughs> he figured out with sensors on the scope what the vital certain maneuvers that you need to make to be able to do good scope, to have scope technique. And he came up with little exercises and things you do and you can, and it was, it's really, really was cool. Of course, he high teched it. But now it's available for $12,000. But I mean, as simulators go, I think it would be a great investment for a program to have for the fellows to play and do different tasks with. So I think, yes, it's not like showing you how to take out a pulp, but it certainly teaches you how to use the scope. And then everything after that is, you know, you'll, you'll figure out over time. Yeah, I I agree. I remember when he presented that and I I thought it was so cool because it just really helps you with the mechanics. Um, The, uh, the explant stomachs and stuff like that. We've incorporated that uh, quite a bit recently into our fellowship program. And it's kind of like just mimicking like the ASGE first year fellows course. um, That part where everybody loves where they go to the lab and they get in there and they start deploying clips and things like that. And I have found that to be really helpful because I feel as though that the fellows, so, you know, hemostatic clips are one thing, but when you're talking about, you know, other things like an over the scope clip or, um, you know, a band EMR, there is something like that. There's, there's, there's at least some familiarity with it um, when you are doing a case and, um, you know, you, you want them to be participating. You don't want to be doing the whole case, but at the same time, you're balancing, you know, the patient's needs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I, I've, we've, we've incorporated that recently at Stony Brook and, and it's been, it's been really cool. And I think the fellows That's appreciate great. it. Yeah. Do you um, have dedicated, um, scopes for, for the, we do, we do. So we, we have dedicated animal scopes and, um, this goes back to the days when I was doing a lot of live animal lab research and I've retained some of those scopes, which were, um, purchased or granted to us at very low cost from Olympus sort of older model scopes. And we've just kept them now mainly for this because we're not doing any live animal uh, stuff anymore. Um, So, um, so I just want to pause for a second and uh, I thank our sponsor cook medical. Um, So cook has sponsored the podcast from the very beginning and we're appreciative um, and certainly uh, of their, of their, you know, dedication to the ASGE and innovation and endoscopy. So, uh, once again, thank you, Cook, for um, giving us the support for this podcast. Um, let me change gears for a minute. This is this is a couple. This is a kind of a tough topic, I think, and really curious to get your thoughts on that. And let's let me paint a picture for you. You have a fellow with you in your afternoon block on a busy, busy Monday, and you have a. In this particular day, it's all screening colons for whatever reason. That's your panel that day, that afternoon. And you've got a screening colon, you know, set up every 30 or 45 minutes, you know, for four and a half hours straight, whatever it is. And your fellow comes and they're just starting their second year fellowship and they just got, quote unquote, elective endoscopy time with Dr. Foe. Um, And you're already 30 minutes behind on your first case. And you're thinking to yourself, 
what the heck am I going to do here? I want to teach this fellow, but I also have to be conscious of the fact that uh, patients are waiting and um, my endoscopy team doesn't want to be here till 7 p.m. And so I know this isn't an easy question, and that's, I guess, kind of why I'm asking you, but what, what, what have you done in these scenarios? So, yeah, I think, you know, I always tell the fellows that you don't have to necessarily do the whole colonoscopy to learn something, right? So, you know, with our first year fellows, oftentimes when they're first starting, we go to the cecum and they withdraw the scope, right? So similarly with a second year fellow who's just starting, I mean, they have to understand, um, you know, that there it is important to make sure that, you know, patients aren't waiting forever and that nurses aren't staying late. So, you know, I give them a certain amount of time to do a certain number of maneuvers and depending upon how it goes, I will often, you know, if I need to, I'll take the scope. And I think mm. they're pretty understanding of that. Um, I really think the fellows are really good at scoping now compared to when we were scoping. I really do because they have CO2 and we do, I do underwater. I mean, I do water immersion to the cecum and I truly believe that that just makes endoscopy, those two things so much easier that you know, you don't have to worry about the fellow laying on the air. I mean, back, mm -hmm. you know, when we used to use air and patients mm -hmm. would extend it and it made right. your job to get to the cecum suddenly harder because of all this retained air. So I, I really think that they're pretty darn good. I've been really impressed because I do remember that I was a first year fellow and it was like April of my second year. And I was like, well, can I really be a, you know, a gastroenterologist and not get to the cecum? I mean, is this going to work? Right. So right. I really think that they've really gotten better. And <clears throat> I think I've gotten better as a teacher. I think at the beginning, you don't really know, you know how to do it yourself, but you don't always know how to teach it. And so it's taken me a while to really figure out, you know, ways that I think I'm pretty good at teaching, but you know, everybody's a little bit different. I give a lot of verbal, you know, cues. I mean, I don't sit back and watch and just see what they do. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, depending upon what year, but I tend to talk to them a lot during it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, but, you know, I think also, you know, you have to have respect for the patient too. And, yeah. um, and so I, and also I'm unfortunately a little bit type A as far as being on time. I don't really, I don't tolerate being really far behind and mm -hmm. the fellows know that. So, you know, everybody has their own personalities yeah. and they got to deal with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, some people I've seen uh, do, I think that, I think you're absolutely right, first of all, what you said about, you know, you don't have to have your hands on the scope the entire time to really learn something. Um, and I, I do a lot of um, switch, <laughs> switch, switch real quick, let me, you know, and then, okay, switch back um, and talk to them, you know, during the switch um, about why I'm stepping in and giving it back to them. Um one thing I've seen on a busy schedule like that, I have some of my colleagues will will say, okay, we're going to go every other, <laughs> right? you know, yeah, no, um, yeah. we're going to go every other on this one. And I think that's kind of a nice way to keep the fellow engaged. It always gives them a break too. Like, okay, you know, you can take your time and write the note on this one um, yeah. and relax a little bit, and then we'll catch up on the following one. And, and that's a way to go about it. Um, the, uh, the other thing you said, which, uh, which I think is, is interesting is the CO2, uh, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I, I feel like I never have a patient in recovery anymore who I'm worried about a perforation because they're having so much pain right. and abdomen's distended, right, um, right. you know, and I feel like I used to have that a lot in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so I think CO2 helps, um, what, tell me more about your water immersion, advancing the scope technique. Sure. 
So I try to, you know, some of the fellows, especially at third years, I sometimes turn off the CO2 and just see how they go. <laughs> because I really think that, you know, it, it weights down the sigmoid and helps straighten it out. And you can really just torque right, left and barely push and get through the sigmoid, which of course is the key to the whole thing, right? And then, you know, you can start using air once you get around into the transverse and, and moving the patient on their back. And so I sort of have a, just a general routine that I do with every patient and, or most every patient. And I just think it works really well. I mean, yeah. I, and I think the fellows really like it. I mean, most of them find do it really. use a water pump, I presume? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. do you, um, do you use a certain amount of water and say, okay, sit here and put this in, or is it just yeah, constantly, sometimes. or is it constantly putting your foot on the pedal as you go? Oh, foot on the pedal as I go. But there's those times when you can't make that turn, right? And you mm -hmm. don't want to push a loop in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just tell the fellows, just sit and be patient, which is funny coming from me because I'm kind of, you know, like I said, a pretty type A person, but I'm pretty patient about that because, you know, I try to tell them this is, this is the key to the whole thing is being straight in the sigmoid. And so, you know, you just sit there and give it a minute and then that, you know, that turn kind of flattens out and you can go straight. So yeah. I'm a big fan of that. And actually our advanced fellow who came from Michigan was the one who sort of introduced us to this idea like a decade ago and we were all like oh this is same with me and same with me yeah yeah same with me our advanced fellow uh introduced us to the the actual water pump like a decade ago and uh <laughs> his name is amar tasani if he's out there he's probably never listening he's somewhere in phoenix um he he brought this thing and we were joking and saying what's with Amar and this pump he brought it from his institution and i mean we haven't been the same since it's like a vital piece of every yeah, scope uh, it's amazing absolutely. it's funny absolutely so um and the other thing I want to mention is uh you reminded me of this is you know first year fellow I mean I don't know about you but when I was a first year fellow I felt like an intern all over again just completely clueless and nervous and 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 that's normal for any fellows listening to this out there it's completely normal and then right. I felt it again actually when I was a fourth year fellow um <laughs> right. you know be, trying to like cannulate and coming home and just basically crying for all intents and purposes <laughs> about how bad I was uh and so anyway um that's also normal for any fellows out there okay last question is also a bit of a difficult one too um not controversial but difficult and and the, one of the things i wanted to raise with you is is the concept of a fellow kind of developing a niche during their fellowship specifically around endoscopy um you know, obviously there's research interests and things like that. And, but I'm talking about endoscopy and, and what do you think about that? Have you seen fellows do this before and, and why is it valuable if they do it? Well, so some of our fellows have, you know, a known interest in one thing or another, and they maybe try to develop that, but um, some fellows, you know, even in general GI, it might be valuable to have a niche depending upon, you know, they start looking for jobs in second year and, Maybe there's a place that's really interested in maybe hiring them, but wants them to be able to do X, Y, or Z. And if that fellow's interested in that, it's a perfect time. As we said, you know, you've done a lot of your clinical rotations early. Your third year, you're going to have time. And it might be a time that maybe your program will send you somewhere where, you know, they have an expertise in that, where you can learn and have like an intensive month or two of learning that if you're interested. And I think it can just make you more marketable. I don't think you need to have it, even simple things like large polyps. So that's sort of my 
you know, present interest is large um, resection of large polyps. And so I've had fellows who second half of third year spend every Monday with me taking out large polyps or, you know, so it doesn't have to be something, you know, does the group, maybe there's a group you want to join and they really need someone, they would love to have someone who they could refer their big polyps to instead of referring it to a tertiary care center, or they need someone to do motility and pH studies. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's things, there's so many things in GI now, right. That, you know, might it be useful. You can certainly do it once you're there. And we've had a number of junior faculty who've gone off for three months or just developed a niche. Um, and it sort of gives them a name you can publish in that area. You know, right. one of our faculty does cystic fibrosis, you know, so, you know, it's not something she had extra training in, but works with the CF you know, people at the pediatric hospital and it sort of gives her, she's doing research, she's writing, you know, so, you know, it just may open up some avenues if, you know, you have that interest. I agree. I agree. Like, like, for example, the other area in in terms of endoscopy niches that comes to mind is, is actually double balloon. Um, I mean, you don't need to do a fourth year fellowship to learn double balloon. And we've had some people, you know, sort of learn this towards the end of their third year and be able to incorporate that into their practice. Um, the other area that comes to mind endoscopically is radiofrequency ablation. Um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a gray zone here because I, I really personally feel that if you're going to do RFA, you should be able to manage a lot of the Barrett's, which means you should be comfortable doing esophageal EMR and you should be able to put stents in and close perforations and EUS. But I, at the same time, I think it's not unreasonable for uh, at all to be able to feel comfortable doing RFA and things like that. And I don't think you necessarily need to spend another year doing advanced fellowship to to sort of, you know, get some more hands-on real life experience in this. And then, as you said, perhaps really develop this further once you get into practice. Right. So I think, I just think they have the freedom, especially in third year to be able to go somewhere for two months or, you know, really focus in an area. I mean, there's some of our fellows who do focus on liver, right? Mm-hmm. And do, you know, we have this pilot program where they can be, be transplant, um, you know, board eligible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we really, with our advanced fellows, sort of try to get them to focus on maybe one area that they find particularly, not that they're not going to do other bread and butter advanced stuff, but, you know, advanced endoscopy is turning into this like huge, huge thing. And we all can't do everything. I mean, there's just no way, right? 100%. So, you know, what What do you think you want to do when you're looking at program? Mm-hmm. And, you know, within that, I, I just think you have to have probably some degree of a little bit of focus. You just can't I, do everything. It's so interesting how it's changed over the years. And, um, you know, you and I are uh, roughly the same age, I think. Um, and, you know, when I trained, advanced endoscopy meant one thing. It meant US and ERCP. And that's it. Right. Right. And um, I remember it was such a big deal that I was, uh, um, you know, trained in both at some jobs. They said, oh, we've never had anybody that's been trained in both. Right. Um, And now uh, what does advanced endoscopy mean? You have third space, you have USCRCP. And what about all these other techniques and technologies that some of them we just mentioned that where do they fit in? You know, does somebody need to do a fourth year to be able to close, do closure and things like that? Right. That's all advanced endoscopy. So it's really a different world. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't sure how it's going to sort of fall out in the end, because I think there's this whole bariatric endoscopy, which right. you honestly don't need to be able to do EOS and ERCP. So, 
maybe that is a separate that's, path if it sort of comes to fruition that that's the way that things are going. Yeah. You know, I, it's just, it's hard to know, but there's just too much to do everything. And it's pretty overwhelming at this exactly. point, I think. Exactly. It's, it's too much to do everything is exactly right. So, but well, I think it's useful for fellows just to think about a niche, you know, it, you know, yeah. it, it can make them more marketable. And especially if they kind of have an idea of maybe where they want to practice and what that practice might be looking for. I think it's valuable to start thinking about that as you're looking for jobs and, you know, planning your, the rest of your training, because you do have that kind of time and it's kind of a nice luxury to have. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You use the, the end of your third year or part of your third year, you know, wisely like that would be a great piece of advice for fellows. So, well, Ash, it's always great to talk to you. And great talking to you, John. Yeah, I always value all your your experience and opinions and definitely a leader in the endoscopy space that's for sure and also in the teaching space so that's why i wanted to have you on this so i appreciate it so much yeah it was really fun well thanks everybody for tuning in again uh we look forward as always to bringing you some great content in the months to come thanks so much take care thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor cook medical You can find the full series at ASGE.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.